funness for C.S. Lewis. He has a penchant for saying things in unorthodox ways. And uh, in Mere Christianity, he writes about the second coming of Christ in this way. He says, God is going to invade this this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. And it's that expression, God without disguise, that struck my attention. Because uh, it reminded me that during the years that our Lord was incarnate here among us, He was God in disguise. He was God incognito. No one would have recognized Him. He behaved and acted as you would expect God to act, but if you looked at him, you would never imagine that he was God. Some of you, I know, were horrified at the film, Oh God, and to some extent I was too, because of the theology, primarily. Uh, The theology was was bad. It was non-Christian, contrary to Scripture. The Lord in that movie was... uh, portrayed as a sort of a confused, fuddy-duddy who didn't quite know what was going on. Others might have been con- might have felt uh, uh, bad about the movie because uh, God was portrayed as someone like George Burns. Frankly, for myself, that didn't concern me. The theology did, but the portrayal didn't, because I think God appeared very much like that in Jesus Christ. He certainly didn't look that way, I don't believe. But uh, it was the same sort of disclosure of God-like character in a body, very unlike God. The Lord had all the limitations of human nature, the weakness, the uh, weariness, the times when he felt frustrated over, over his weakness. He was without sin, as Hebrews puts it, He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not himself sinful, but he was like us in every way. He had to be made like his brothers, Hebrews says. And uh, while he walked among us, though he was God, he was undetected. But there were times that the glory was revealed. And uh, we had one such occasion described for us here by Matthew in, in Matthew 17. In verse 28, Jesus says, of chapter 16, Jesus says to the disciples, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's an unusual approach to this subject. As we look back over 1900 years, we know that all of these apostles are dead and the Lord has not yet come. Normally men do see death, see the Lord by passing through death or by waiting until history unfolds itself and the Lord comes back. But here the disciples were given a preview of coming of a coming attraction. 
Before the time, they saw the Lord coming back in glory. They saw the glorified Lord Jesus on the top of Mount Hermon. And that experience is described for us in chapter 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. They saw him in his glory. They saw him as God. John, in his gospel, describes uh, this experience in this way. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, that is God, became flesh. That's what the incarnation means. God clothed himself with humanity. He was enfleshed, incarnate. And from time to time, the disciples saw that glory expressed through that body. But, but many times it was not seen. And yet he never ceased to be God. He was always God in a body. John makes that very clear in the first line of, of, his, uh, of his gospel when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. God put up his tent alongside ours. You may on occasion hear the doorbell ring and you go to the front door and you find a couple of young men standing there in their blue suits and uh, they will tell you that Jesus is not God. Well, you tell them to go back and read the Bible. Put aside all their other books and read the Bible. Because John says the Word was God. And we know from the literature of that day that frequently they inserted the term word for Yahweh or Jehovah. Occasionally in translating from the Hebrew text into Aramaic, as most of the translations were in those days, because they were reluctant to pronounce the name of God, they, they didn't pronounce the name Yahweh, they would insert the term word. For God, you find that in many of the so-called Targums, the Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament. So to the readers of John's Gospel, there was no question that he was talking about the Lord God of Israel. And when he says, the Word became flesh, they knew what he was talking about. God became flesh and walked among men. And here the disciples on the mountain saw him as he really was. It was somewhat like a a tent with a Coleman lantern inside, and occasionally the tent would flap, and you would see the light out from under the uh, the tent. That's the way it was with our Lord. There were flashes of glory underneath the tent. He was God in flesh. And the disciples had an opportunity here to see his glory in its fullest expression. They didn't have to wait until time unfolded itself until it happened in history, they were given a preview of the Lord's coming. And as we've seen, it was that that sustained them 
through the years ahead as they had to face their own cross, their own death and martyrdom for the cause of Christ. And it's that that keeps us steady and strong as we have to face pressure and distress and as we struggle knowing that our destiny is fixed. There's glory ahead. As Paul puts it, I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So it doesn't make any difference what we have to face. Stress in our homes, a difficult job situation, health problems. We know that God is moving everything toward one point in history. When the Lord Jesus is revealed in his glory, and those of us who have submitted to his lordship are revealed as his sons in their glory. As John puts it in his little little letter, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now the disciples had a preview of this coming attraction. They saw the Lord in his glory, and that's what steadied them through the hard times ahead. And then we're told in verse 3, that Moses and Elijah appeared to them, that is to James, Peter, and John, talking with him. There were two associates with the Lord on the mountain. We know from the other Gospels that the apostles went to sleep. Perhaps they were wearied from their climb up the side of the mountain, and, and they were just plain tired, so they went to sleep. But they were awakened out of their sleep by a conversation. They heard the Lord talking to someone. And when they looked up, they saw the Lord glorified, his garments uh, shining with light, and alongside him, Moses and Elijah, chatting with one another. And we asked the question, why Moses and Elijah? Why these two men? What's significant about their being with the Lord on the mountain? Well, there are several explanations, I think. The first is that these two men represent the two types of prophetic ministry throughout the Old Testament. Moses was the revealer prophet through whom God mediated the law. Moses went up into the mountain and God revealed the law to Moses and that covenant then was, was taught to the people. He was the founder of the theocratic nation. He, he originated the nation. He was its leader initially. He was a great hero in their thinking, and one to whom God spoke face to face. He was the one who wrote the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, and so he was uh, highly regarded in, in Jewish thought, in Jewish history. And then there was Elijah, who was the greatest of the reformer prophets. He was like the other prophets uh, of his time. And those who followed him, Elijah, or Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Isaiah, men who called Israel back to God, whose word was to return to the Lord and back to the covenant and to the word. These were the great heroes of Israel's history, like um, our heroes, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and John Wayne and all these great men that uh, we think of when we look back into our uh, historic origins, great men, and uh, as such archetypical of, of the prophets who had ministered to, uh, to Israel. And as you know from our reading last week, Peter sort of missed the point again, 
Peter was so excited at seeing these two men, he said, let's, uh, let's build shrines for these three. We'll build one for you, Lord, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's a typical Eastern way of thinking about a revelation of God, a theophany. When God reveals himself in some special way, they built a shrine or a temple to memorialize that, that event. And that's the way Peter was thinking. Let's put up a little monument here to you three men. And in the midst of uh, that statement, the father interrupts him because he was off target and reminds him of the uniqueness of his son. No, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's the unique one. He's not one in a long line of other prophets. He's my son. Listen to him. Peter had forgotten what he said earlier when Jesus said to the, to the apostles, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some think you're Jeremiah, some think you're Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. He received direct revelation from God. He understood the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus. But at this moment on the mountain, he forgot himself. So the Lord had to remind him, this is my son. This is the unique one. So I, it seems to me that one explanation for their appearance on the mountain is that they form the backdrop against which the uniqueness of Christ is displayed. He's not like any other prophets. He him, himself is unique in his ministry. But it seems to me there's another question we have to raise and answer, and it's this. Why anyone at all on the mountain? If the Lord wanted to show the singularity, the uniqueness of Jesus, why didn't he just have the Lord alone stand on the mountain? Why anyone associated with him? Well, I think for myself that these two men are typical of all the Old Testament saints who would live in glory with the Lord Jesus throughout eternity. Remember last week, we talked about that phrase. After, after Peter makes his great confession, the Lord says to Peter, Blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I will build my church on this, uh, on you, on the rock, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as we said, the term there is actually Hades, the realm of the dead. And what the Lord is saying is that though he would enter the realm of the dead and the gates of hell would close shut behind him, hell would not be able to contain him. He would break out. And now he has with him two of these saints who share in this victory. These men, these great men in the Old Testament who were alive because of Jesus coming, death, burial, and resurrection. They are typical of all the saints that would come with the Lord Jesus when he comes back. That's the promise. The Lord would come with his saints, and these were two of the saints that will come with him. They, like Jesus, had broken out of Hades. They had conquered death with him and were living. Now, one of the problems we have, of course, is time and sequence and uh, how do we explain the fact that these men are living with Jesus on the mountain and he had not yet died and, and been buried and, and raised? Well, we have to understand that the cross is an event in eternity as well as in time. It happened in time, but it has eternal implications. Everyone 
who believes the revelation that God has given receives eternal life through Jesus Christ. Those who live prior to his time are saved on the basis of his death and receive resurrection on the basis of his death, and those that live after receive resurrection on the basis of his death. It all depended upon that action, his death, burial, and resurrection. And I think what the Father intended to convey through this scene was that all of God's assembly, all the people of God, live because of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection is the work that the Father applies to everyone who believes in him. They live because he lives. It's interesting to look at this uh, passage in terms of life uh, after death and what, what that experience will be like. There are several inferences that we can make. One is that we will be recognizable in the eternal state because, of Moses, because Moses and Elijah are recognized as men. They have bodies, though they're unlike the bodies they uh, possessed on earth. There, seems to, there seem to be some differences, and yet they're recognizable. Now, I don't know how James, Peter, and John were able to recognize them. They didn't have any pictures in their wallet, but uh, they knew. And uh, apparently we will be known. People will be able to recognize us. Secondly, and this I think would be very important to Carolyn, apparently we'll be able to spend a great deal of time communicating with each other. We'll do a lot of talking. Because uh, these two men were chatting with the Lord Jesus, as Luke tells us, about the significance of his death, his departure from Israel. Or from uh, Jerusalem. And so we have in, in small, in a small way, some idea of what life is like because the Lord Himself is, has broken out of Hades. He's gone before us, prepared the way for us. And we live because of Him. God's people of all time live because of Him. Our destiny is secure. And that's a steadying thing in times of pressure. When our homes are not going well, when we're struggling as husbands or wives, or we're struggling with our children, or our jobs, or whatever the particular pressure may be that you experience tonight or this morning, the one thing that, that we're certain of is that our destiny is fixed. And it's all based on the historic fact of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now in verses 9 through 13, the story continues. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. I don't know about you, but when, you, when I have seen something exciting, or when God has done something uh, exciting in my life, I want to tell someone, and that's precisely how these three men must have felt. They had seen something that no one else had seen. They had seen the Lord coming 
in his glory. They had seen Moses and Elijah. They had heard things that no one else had ever heard before, and they wanted to tell someone. And now the Lord places this verbal quarantine on them. He, he prohibits them from saying anything, like shaking up a Coke bottle and then sticking a cork in it. They were dying to tell someone. But the Lord said, keep it quiet. Wait until the resurrection. Then you can tell what you've seen. And we say, why? Why would the Lord do that? This is good news. It needs to be proclaimed to the world. Why would he so frustrate them? Well, it's because they had no message until the resurrection. They had nothing to say. That's the basis of Christian proclamation. Without the resurrection, we have no gospel. It's not good news that the Lord Jesus was the best man that ever lived. That just further condemns me. It's not good news that he has certain expectations of me if I want to follow him. That's bad news. I can't measure up. All I, all I have to do is read the Sermon on the Mount. And I realize what bad news that really is. I can't do it. I can't produce that, that quality of life. If that's the good news, what Jesus taught, that's not good news at all. There has to be something more. And that's the point that the Lord is trying to get across. These men have nothing to say until the resurrection. That's the argument that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15. When he says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we are, we are of all men most miserable. Let's forget the whole thing. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's live for money and the good times. Because there's really nothing else to live for. There's no hope. We're in the most desperate sort of situ situation. The resurrection is essential to our proclamation of the gospel. Without it, we have nothing to say. A number of years ago, I was talking to a religion professor in a uh, college on the West Coast, and we were talking about the resurrection. I asked him if he believed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And his comment was, well, I, I believe in the Easter event. And uh, as we talked further, he told me that the Easter event was this. Something happened on Easter morning. He wasn't sure what, but something happened. And the apostles were certain that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that's what gave dynamic to their message. That's what motivated them to go out, because they sincerely believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. And that's what sustained them through their martyrdom and all the difficulties that came upon the apostles as a result of their proclamation of the gospel. That was the Easter event. I said, well, sir, do you believe that life came back into Jesus' crucified body and he walked out of that tomb, bodily restored, resurrected in a body? Tried to make it as clear as I could. And he laughed. He said, you don't really believe that a corpse came back to life, do you? And I said, sir, I do. We've got nothing to say to anyone if he didn't. Let's forget the whole Christian message. In fact, let's just be irreligious. Nothing makes any sense. When I stand beside the tomb of, or the, the grave, what can I say to a family if I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead? We have no hope. We're of all men most miserable because that's the heart of the message. And that's what Jesus wanted to get across to these people. 
And when on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had risen and they had their first opportunity to preach, that was the center of Peter's message. This man whom you crucified through the hands of godless men, God is raised from the dead. That's the message. And without it, we've got nothing to say. That's, that's the assurance that our destiny is fixed and secure. Well, then the disciples have a question about Elijah and the sequence of events that leads up to the second coming. Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first, they say. The scribes were the teachers of Israel. The scribes taught that before the second coming, before the coming of Christ, Elijah would be his forerunner. That was based on Malachi's prediction in the last chapter of Malachi, if you want to turn there with me. That's the last page in our English Old Testament, verses 5 and 6. Let's turn to the beginning of Matthew and there are a couple of other pages and then there's Malachi. He says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. That's the last word from a prophet in the Old Testament. That's what was left ringing in their ears. Before the day of the Lord came, Elijah would come and restore all things. Now, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is the day when the Lord intervenes in history to set things right. There are a number of these days of the Lord as they're described by the prophets. History is like a machine that's uh, out of balance. Mankind is shaking itself apart. Humanity would self-destruct if God didn't periodically intrude into history and straighten things out. He's like a master mechanic who, uh, when he finds the machine shaking apart, makes some fine adjustment and gets it back uh, running more smoothly again so it won't destroy itself. And there are a number of these times when God intervened in history and, and straightened man out, got things moving back in the right direction. But the prophets always said there is a time coming yet future, the great and terrible day of the Lord when he will once for all put an end to all this nonsense and he'll bring about righteousness and justice and He'll set things right. That's the day that he has his day. Man is having his day now, but God will have his day at some future time. And before that happens, Elijah will come. So the scribes were right. They were basing their interpretation on this passage. Elijah comes, and the Lord comes and set things, sets things right. And so the Lord says, in response to their question in verse 11, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. They're right. The scribes are right. Elijah is coming. But I say to you, Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. When John was conceived, the angel spoke to Zacharias, his father, and told him that the son who would be born of him would be the forerunner, spoken of by Malachi and Isaiah. And uh, 
he would uh, come before the great and terrible day of the Lord and he would restore all things and he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So Zacharias knew that his son was to be Elijah. And then in Matthew 11, the Lord uh, Matthew records a, a discussion with the Pharisees. And there he says again, John the Baptist is Elijah, if you will believe it. And now he says the, th- the same thing to the disciples. John the Baptist is the one that Malachi predicted. But what Malachi did not predict is that they would put him to death. They'd do away with him, just as they would put their Messiah away. He suffered. Messiah will suffer. And what the Lord is doing here is introducing into their thinking a sequence of events that they were unfamiliar with. From the Old Testament, they knew that the forerunner would come And then the Lord would come and he would set everything right. And what they did not see is that the forerunner would come and suffer and die and Messiah would come and suffer and die and history and time would grind on and there would be all sorts of distress and trouble and pain until the Lord came back and then he would set everything right. That was a new sequence. They didn't understand that. They didn't know that from the Old Testament. Time is a great mystery. We're simply not given to understanding time. It was the Lord who said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which are given, which are appointed by the Father's authority. Whenever we start uh, thinking about time, we always run into mystery. That's why I'm always reluctant to uh, get too excited about uh, sequence, In the end times, when I hear people say, the Lord is coming soon, I say, right. And they say, next year. I say, well, maybe, maybe. We don't know. Even the Lord, during the days of his incarnation, simply didn't know everything about time. He says so. Only the Father knew. And therefore, it's a bit presumptuous of us to think that we can put everything together. We can't. There's some things we simply don't know. And here the disciples had left out of their, their sequence of events an important set of facts, and that, and those have to do with the suffering Messiah. The forerunner would come and die, and Messiah would come and die. But, he would then set things right as he had promised. And again, this would provide security to the apostles as they went through the hard times ahead. And then we read in verses 14 through 18, As they continued on down the mountain, they came to the multitude. And a man came up to him, to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and is very ill. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this 
mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move. And nothing shall be impossible to you. Now, I want to try to read between the lines a little bit and reconstruct this uh, set of circumstances from the other gospel accounts. This is uh, not necessarily the way it happened. This is the Ropricus Absurdus version of this event. But I think it helps us to capture something of, of what was going on. When the Lord came down the mountain, he walked right into a big rhubarb. The scribes were shouting at the apostles. The apostles were angry. The whole thing had degenerated into a street fight. Now what preceded it was a man who brought his son to the Lord. Luke tells us that he came looking for the Lord. But the Lord was gone. He was on the mountain. He'd been detained there with the three apostles. And uh, this dear man brings his son Looking for the Lord, things must really be bad for the father to bring the son. Usually it's the mother who does things like that, unfortunately. But things had deteriorated to the point where this man was desperate. And he was looking for the Lord to cure his son of demon possession. The New American Standard says that he had epilepsy. Actually, the word, if you look in the margin of the New American Standard, is moonstruck. He was insane. This demon had driven him crazy. He was a lunatic and suicidal. Apparently, from time to time, he would throw himself into the fire, into the water, and try to take his life. So it was a desperate, desperate situation. The man comes looking for the Lord. The Lord is gone. The three of the inner circle, James, Peter, and John, are gone. No one's left but these nine flunkies. That's all he had. So, perhaps Andrew says, maybe we can help you. We've seen the Lord do this sort of thing. We've had a little experience at it. We'll have a go at it. So they bring this poor boy to the nine apostles, and uh, perhaps Andrew says, now let's see, what was it that the Lord said at times like this? Uh, oh yeah, be gone, all right? So he says, be gone! And about that time, the boy is shaken with another uh, spasm, and he falls on the ground, nothing happens. So uh, Andrew says to Bartholomew, what did I do wrong? And Bartholomew says, well, the Lord, when he says things, has a little more authority in his voice. Perhaps you should say it with a little bit more uh, strength. And so uh, Andrew looks at the boy and he says, be gone! And nothing, nothing happens. Things are just as bad. So they start thinking, well, you know, how the Lord did it. He held his hand a certain way and he pointed in a certain direction and, and they tried that and nothing happens. And they, well, maybe it's the Lord's robe. He has a seamless robe that he wears. Perhaps if we could just find the robe, then we could do it. Or where is that book on five principles for casting out demons? And the scribes are watching this thing go on and they start laughing. And like, uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, they're saying, maybe you need to talk louder. Maybe God can't hear you. And pretty soon this thing just degenerates into a big fight. And the Lord comes back down the mountain and he sees what's going on. And his response is almost verbatim Moses' response when he came down from Mount Sinai. If you go back to Deuteronomy 32, you have Moses' words. 
He'd been on the mountain receiving revelation from God, and he came down to find the nation of Israel worshiping calves, rejecting the truth that they had, just making things worse, trying to solve their problems by themselves apart from God and causing the whole situation to to deteriorate, and that's precisely what the Lord discovered. And that's why he says, "You, you people, you unbelieving, perverted people, won't you ever get it right? Bring him here. And they bring the boy there, and he says, be gone. And the demon flees. And the boy is restored to his father. And the disciples say, how come we couldn't do that? And Jesus says, because you weren't believing. Your little faiths, you caught the disease from the world around you. Do you know what gave the Lord the capacity to speak with such authority? It wasn't his tone of voice. It wasn't his educational background. It wasn't the Carnegie course that he had taken. It was his quiet dependence upon the Father. As man, he was always dependent upon the Father. And that's what he wants us to learn. In some sense, we also are God in disguise. We're never God in the sense that he was. He's unique in that regard. But as Peter puts it, we are partakers of the divine nature. We have the Lord indwelling us. And in a very real sense, God is in disguise. You don't look like God. Some of you are tall, dark, and handsome. Some of you are short, shot, and shapeless. Doesn't matter. You're God in disguise. And that's what the Lord wanted the disciples to see. The problem was not that they didn't have the principles down and they couldn't speak with a commanding voice. It's that they just weren't counting on God. And that's where the power comes from for all of life. That's why Jesus says, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain and it would be uprooted and cast into the sea. That, That expression about the mountain is, a, is an idiom. It's found in literature outside the Bible. Anyone who could, who was capable of doing impossible things was said to be able to uproot mountains. There's reference in the Talmud to a rabbi prior to Jesus' time who could uproot mountains. It's just a simple idiom, cliche. A powerful man. He says, if you just had faith like a mustard seed, a little bit of faith, a little bit of dependence upon God, look what you could do. And in one of the other gospel accounts, when the disciples questioned the Lord further, he said, this this kind only comes out by prayer. There's a bit of irony in that statement, I think. He doesn't mean that they had to pray for hours and hours in order to, to cast that demon out. What he's saying is this. When you face an impossible situation, pray. Just ask the Father and then do what, what's required. And that's what the disciples had not done. But that's the way the the son walked through life. That's the way he handled every situation, every crisis, all the hard times, all the pressures. He quietly walked in dependence upon the Father. And therefore, he was adequate for everything. And so are we. In a very real sense, the glory of God indwells us as well. 
And that's what we need to count upon. Not our experience, not our personality, not our humor, not the strength of our bodies, not our education, not our knowledge. Those things may or may not be of use. We need to count on God for everything. Rely on Him. Draw on His resources. Depend on Him. Abide in Him. Faith is not making yourself believe things that are hard to believe. That's not what the Lord is saying. He's not saying to these disciples, if you just really believe this boy could be healed, you could have done it. That's not the point. Faith is counting on God for all of life. Some months ago, I ran across a letter from a missionary to his supporters. It goes like this. Man, it's great to be in the thick of the fight and to draw the old devil's heaviest guns, to have him at you with depression and discouragement, slander and disease. He doesn't waste time on a lukewarm bunch. He hits good and hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. When you're on your back with fever and at your last ounce of strength, when some of your converts backslide, when you learn that your most promising inquirers are fooling, when your mail gets held up and some don't bother to answer your letters, is that time to put on mourning? No, sir. That's the time to pull out the stops and shout hallelujah. The old fellow's getting it in the neck and hitting back. Heaven is leaning over the battlements and watching. Will he stick to it? And as they see who is with us, as they see the unlimited reserves, the boundless resources, as they see the impossibility of failure, how sad they must be when we run away. Now what do we have to face today that we're inclined to run away from? Maybe it's the economy, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your home, maybe it's a relationship, it's a decision that you, that you need to make. It's a hard one. Hard moral choice. You realize that you have the very nature of God Himself indwelling you, the infinite resources of our Lord Jesus to draw upon. And as we draw upon Him, people will see in us in our life, our action, our character. The character of God Himself. Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Father, we look forward to the opportunity of seeing You in Your glory as these apostles did. And we thank You that we can experience that glory today without sight. By faith, we can rely upon all that You are to be all that we need to be. Teach us to, to believe you, to count on you, to turn away from our temptation to uh, rely upon the old tested and true ways, the ways that feel most comfortable to us in approaching problems. And just help us to put all those away and count on you for all of life. We just thank you for who you are and for being available to us this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.